You are listening to the Enormo Cast. I don't know what's happening in your neck of the woods, but out here in the great American West, it's the start of desert crack season, which means two things. The bros are charging up their Bluetooth speakers, and people are wondering where the hell they're going to get enough cams. But Black Diamond has your back. On top of the heap are the Camelot ultralights. Cams so fleet that Elon Musk once shot one into space strapped to a bottle rocket. And then there's the venerable C4, the cam that still rules the creek. And legend has it, if you whisper Camelot, Camelot, Camelot into a mirror while holding a red C4 to your forehead, the location of the easiest for you 12 minus will be revealed. And don't forget the dinky Camelot X4s and X4 offsets. But do forget about clean underwear if you start whipping on the point one in sandstone. But wherever your crack reveals itself, remember, BD has you covered with the sweetest cams known to man. Check them all out at blacktimeandequipment.com or your favorite local shop. So I've been laying on the TC Pro from Sportiva for the last few months, like that annoying guy at the gym who's still trying to convince you that trad climbing is the coolest thing you can do on a rope. Spoiler alert. It is, actually. It is still the coolest thing. But what if you're like, Chris, I don't climb slabs like some muscle-bomb bonobo. I'm more like a gazelle. You know, if a gazelle had opposable thumbs and a moderately popular Instagram feed. Well then, my little bovidae, look no further than the Futura from Sportiva. Refined by the world's best climbers, the Futura excels in steep precision footwork, and the no-edge technology gives them unparalleled sensitivity, just like you. So if you want to go from prey to predator on those steep sport climbs and boulders, check out a pair of Futuras at Sportiva.com or your favorite local shop. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing it at? You, are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh it's yeah, big place that side of town. That's a big nice. place. You sold that out. Out. I'll see. We really should... Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed climbing with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Good weather. Bad weather. Now or later, anytime. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment, with support from Maxim Ropes. And the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the EnormaCast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the EnormaCast. This is your host, Chris Galoose. It's about 10 a.m. Daylight savings time here in Colorado. The dark time is past. March 14th, 2019, and this is episode 171 of the EnormaCast, a conversation with climber Mark Twight. And this turned out to be one of the longest interviews that I've ever gotten on the EnormaCast, and so I've cut it into two episodes. This will be part one, um, and it's still... Solid hour and a half. So by the time we're all finished with this, we hit into three hours, but I definitely think it's worth it. And I sort of fretted about 
trying to edit it down and get it into sort of a smaller package. And then I remembered that this is the Enormacast and I can do whatever I want, actually. And you guys would expect me to give you the whole enchilada. That's, that's the game over here. You get everything. The cheese, the tangy sauce, the meaty center, you know, that weird soggy lettuce on the side that you're never going to eat. So dig in for these two awesome and in-depth interviews with Mark Twite. But let me talk a little bit about my weird and convoluted relationship with Mark Twite. And if you're nearing my age, if you came up climbing in the 80s and 90s, early 2000s, then you, you probably have a similar relationship with Mark Twite. The interesting thing about Mark is that he had a reputation in those years, those decades, for being sort of a punk rock alpinist, uh, angry young man. He was prone to sort of calling out ethical lapses in public. His writing was angry, fast-paced, kind of a new idea of how to, how to relate climbing, which we talk about in here. And frankly, he was a little bit scary. His nickname, I don't know if he chose it or the media chose it or even it's possible that John Sherman chose it, was Dr. Doom. And he sort of put out this idea of alpinism as sort of a death march. And that affected me as a young climber who actually did, in fact, dream of being an alpinist at one point. And I did do some in my deep, deep past. I just happened to move to California in there somewhere, and those sunny rock climbs just took over. However, I was influenced. And instead of scaring me off, like a lot of 20-somethings, all that imagery, that scary imagery just made me more stoked. And like many of my peers had an image of Mark Twite that was kind of set in stone about this sort of scary guy, this angry guy. And I carried that with me for the last 20 years, even though I haven't heard too much about Mark Twite. But his influence remains. He wrote two very influential books, one called Extreme Alpinism, which was one of the first manuals about how to go fast and light in the mountains, how to train for climbing, all that sort of thing. And then he published a collection of his essays that had appeared in magazines in the 80s and 90s called Kiss or Kill, The Confessions of a Serial Climber. And in the history of the Normacast, I think I've gotten more requests to have Mark Twite on than just about anybody. But frankly, I was a little scared of Mark Twite. I didn't know what he would think of this goofy little podcast that we do over here. And I didn't really know how to get in touch with him. Although that might have just been me pretending because I, I, I was worried what he would say. And when I finally did get in touch with him, I got his contact through a mutual friend, Brittany Griffith, who said, yeah, you need to get in touch with him. He's a great guy. Don't worry about it. I okayed it with him. Just uh, send him an email. So I sent him an email about the podcast, my normal pitch. And the email I got back, Mark and I now laugh about it for various reasons, which I'll get to in a second. Um, and I'm not revealing any sort of secret here. When, when I quote the very first line of the email I received back from Mr. Twite, the, the title of the email was, let's start with this. And the first line was, I hate modern journalists and podcasts in general, period. And instead of being pissed off or bummed out or insulted, I just, I just thought it was amazing because it fit right in to the Mark Twite that lived in my psyche uh, from when I first started climbing. He did leave the door open, though, because he, he asked me, well, why, why do you want to interview me? So I gave him a, a litany of reasons, and we started a bit of a dialogue. And actually, Mark did, in the end, agree to do the podcast, although somewhat reluctantly, 
um, I, I felt. And then his schedule and my schedule just made it sort of impossible for, for quite some time, and it, and it fell onto the back burner again. And then, lo and behold, onto my podcast feed pops the Dissect podcast. Mark and some creative partners had started their own podcast about a year after I got that email, which, of course, really cracked me up. And I was like, wait a minute. So then I finally sent him another email and said, hey, saw you had a podcast, you know, kind of laughing about it. And finally, Mark and I now having this understanding about what podcasting was all about. And Mark had listened to mine and also found the uh, aid rant, which he enjoyed. Uh, We started having a dialogue. And then in the end, the cool thing was, is that suddenly Mark was the guy that was really pushing to get this thing done and invited me up to Salt Lake. And when I showed up at his place up there and walked through the door, I was still this nervous 20-year-old from 1992, worried about meeting, you know, if not a hero, at least this guy who, who again, I'd created this mythology around. And from the moment that Mark walked out and we shook hands, uh, it was amazing. He was gracious. He was forthcoming. He was excited that I was there. Uh, We went out to dinner and finally sat down in his studio, the Dissect studio, for a solid three hours from about 9.30 to 12.30 midnight. And we got a lot of good stuff. So that's the story of Mark Twyden. And again, if, if some of you guys grew up reading about Mark Twyde or reading his writing, then then you might really identify with this story, this idea that I had sort of a mythology around this guy that has now been broken down. Once I was done with this interview, I really felt like I had a better understanding of who he is and who he was at that time. And also, I ended up with a lot more respect than I ever had for Mark Twyde. And that respect begins with the fact that Mark was willing to eat crow about his initial contact and about podcasting in general. He's a big fan of the medium now, and I think it works really well for his voice and what he and his partners do over there at Dissect. Um, and that's where we kind of open this uh, this interview, is him talking about that mistake that he might have made and uh, admitting that he's made a few mistakes, which is part of what makes this interview so good. So buckle in. This one's very enormacasty, but I hope you like listening as much as I did when I was sitting across from Mark in the studio. Yeah, I've been wrong about a lot of things okay, in my good. life. All right, all okay, right. so that's a good place to start. Yeah, and I mean, <laughs> wrong and vocally so. Right. And then realize like, ah, this is actually kind of a cool way to do something, to communicate in an organic way that mm-hmm. that doesn't like. Because I go back and you know, I, hey, you say yeah, Kiss or Kill was influential at a certain time. I would have to agree with you, but if I go back and read some of that stuff now, and I just like the Italians are producing a second edition and so they're going to do new layout and so the day before yesterday I wrote a new introduction for the second edition in Italian or whatever and so I you know go back every now and then and read some of that stuff and I go oh, man <laughs> yeah that's not right well I just reread it and and 
another aside, I reread it while passing a kidney stone, so I felt a certain affinity to the things you were going through. <laughs> to the pain? Yeah, to the <laughs> to pain. The, I had voluntarily... But um, but yeah, let's let's um. Actually, we're talking about it. So yeah, the book is called "Kiss or Kill: Confessions of a Serial Alpinist or Serial Climber." Serial Climber, okay. Yeah. Serial Climber. It's close to Serial Killer. Yeah, right. Oh, I get not, it. Uh, yes, nice. stole yeah. it. I stole the title. Um, and came out what year? Do you remember? Uh, two thousand one. Okay, two thousand one. So right. So extreme alpinism was nineteen ninety nine. Kiss or Kill was two thousand one. Okay, so, but the reason I'm confused is because it's a compilation. Yes. Of, of Previous articles. Stuff, yeah. So it's basically 25 essays that were written between 1984. 84 is the first right. one, and then 2000 is the last one. Okay, so the book came out. The essays were out there because that's confusing to me because I actually, in a class at Colorado State circa 1990, okay, I stood in front of a bunch of lit majors <laughs> ouch, and read The Abattoir. Oh, uh, that went down like... <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, well, I'm sure everyone totally like 20, identified. If it had been like 2016, 2015, this they would have called security, yeah, or at least alerted, you know, the counselors at the school that there's this kid in this class that and he's know. he's totally identifying with this guy who's writing in what he called first person posthumous, <laughs> <laughs> which is essentially what. You know, it was. It was yeah. like, yeah, just splattered on the rocks, and now I'm writing about it. Yeah, that was the fiction. <laughs> it was fi- it was a fiction class, so I knew that we were, I was dealing with fiction. So yeah, but that that's you know the kid that I was, and I think there was a whole my generation, and I was a little bit behind you. I'm ten years or so younger than you are. And, I think exactly. Right? Yeah, and so you know this influence, this idea that alpinism was, I guess, this sort of dark path of introspection and and you know harrowing kind of pain was a little bit ingrained in us to the point where a friend of mine uh you know when i when when i first was talking to you about doing the show he was just like that guy like i never knew you could have fun alpine climbing (laughs) and so this is the kind of thing that i mean it's an influential it was a terribly influential period the book came out a little bit later but you're writing through those two 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 decades decades yeah you know really I, I mean, I, I, I'm actually wondering, I guess we'll get to it now, is were you aware of what these things were sort of hooking these jumper cables to guys like me and, and, and a, you know, young alpinists that were coming up? Or were you just spitting them in, into the world and seeing what was going to happen? No, I, I was not. Con- I mean, let's say a decade into it, maybe, or mm-hmm. whatever. When I, when I, I think I found my voice a little bit, um, I, I started to get an idea or you know, if that 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 people were actually reading them, and I'm like, no, no, I didn't mean that. Don't right. do that thing. I oh, think that's, that's a realization a lot of authors have. But eventually, the people are actually yeah. reading it, and then they're like, you know, going and setting buildings on fire, or, you know, or whatever, mm-hmm. like weird, you know, thing that the protagonist did in the book. Or, um, and, and I, uh, so in the beginning, I wasn't aware. For me, I was reacting against something else, something that was um, that had already happened in a way, or like this establishment of an idea. Um, you know, the sort of like if you look in the sort of gold and silver ages of alpinism, I mean, it was a very romantic ideal to go into the mountains and have these sort of beautiful experiences and 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 not necessarily talk about them in the way of having conquered nature or anything like that. So there was this romantic notion. And and to me, that can only happen when you're in an environment and, and, and very comfortable with it. 
And something that Jeff Lowe had said after reading Kiss or Kill, that like the original Kiss or Kill article, mm-hmm. which um, Michael Kennedy uh, graciously basically published, you know, I think he changed one word and published it sort of unedited. And it was, you know, that was sort of the blueprint for the rest of my career. And that, that came out in 1987. Um, but Jeff Lowe read it and, um, and thought like, wow, I was with you on that thing. And his experience was totally different because he was in an environment that he was fully adapted to. He was a competent climber. He was a visionary. He was a guy at the top of his game in mm-hmm. 86 when we went. And I was on my first trip to the Himalayas, my, my, my third trip out of the United States. I was freaked out most of the time, like completely and utterly scared and uncomfortable. And, that, and I was trying to write that experience without saying I was scared. And I had also read a lot of climbing expedition books mm-hmm. and realized that um, you guys go on a trip to the Himalayas and it takes almost as long to read the book as it did for you to drive overland from you know, England or wherever to get to the Himalayas and try and climb this thing. And I thought, I can just, you know, I'm into punk rock. I can, I can do the you know, one minute, 30 second version of this. Jeff and I spent uh, nine days trying to climb the South Pillar of Nipsey, and I was able to address that in whatever right. punk rock way in 1,500 words. And I right. thought, this is what this should be about. This shouldn't be some laborious fucking book where you need an armchair. I, I, th- I want to write an article you can read sitting on the toilet. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the punk rock thing is, is also the one of the big distinctive parts of a lot of those early articles, the inclusion of uh, lyrics, you know, probably most famously skinny puppy. Um, but a lot of these, and you know, it's, I guess I don't, I'm not, I'm not sure what the, the vernacular is probably post-punk uh, somewhere, somewhere involved in that. I don't think I included in any article it's genuine. What would, you know, if, if we want to like, hashed right down yeah. to the details any real punk rock but it was it was certainly post and a lot of dark wave and then uh, you know and the reason for it people are like why did you use those lyrics and i, I couldn't say at the time because i didn't understand but now i look back and i realize like due to my inability to write i had to use other people's words to create right. an, an image that i couldn't create on my own because i was totally sort of self-taught writer and i was like casting about and some of the stuff that came out later in the, in the kiss or kill book. I mean, I, I had to go back and rewrite because when I read it in the year 2000, when I was working on that collection of essays, I'm like, Oh my God, this is fucking horrible. I can, I can kick that thing's ass now. And so some of those things got rewritten, um, with 15 years or 10 years more advanced facility with the written word. So can we go back to the punk rock kid? Yeah. Like, I mean, I assume it, it came first. The punk rock obsessed kid, and and I guess lead us to the nexus oh, where it where it happened, where you were like climbing is is an expression of these same ideas I have in my head. That's that's a curious way to put it, but maybe it's right. There there was there was a point where I was pretty obsessed with what I would at the time have called you know, uh, well I wouldn't have at the time. It was just music. Um, I went to a lot of live shows. I listened to a lot of prog rock. I saw Rush three times in concert. The first show I actually saw, um, first live show I ever went to see was Thin Lizzy opening for Queen Ooh. on the Bohemian Rhapsody tour. Nice. And that was, there was a girl, Joanna something in high school, and she was like two years ahead of me in school, and she was into the whole 
she was super into Bowie and that. And she said, Queen is coming. You have to go. I'm like, what's Queen? Um, I, I just, and I was just like, I was at that show. Phil in it was fucking amazing. Like the thin, during the Thin Lizzy set, and I was utterly blown away. Um, and then um, I was just like, fuck, okay, that's very Mercury. A person can actually do that. Right. A person can sing like that, can move like that, can absolutely hold that crowd in the palm of his hand. And and uh, um, and then, I mean, I saw, yes, I saw Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. I mean, uh, you name a big fucking prog rock band in that era, and I, I, I saw them, you know, at the Seattle Coliseum or at the Arena or the Paramount or someplace. Right, so you're in Seattle. So I'm in Seattle. Grew okay. up, I mean, was... Uh, born in Yosemite, lived there a little over two years, moved to Mount Rainier, um, and lived there for three years, and then Seattle uh, to go to school. The formative years. Yeah. The form, yeah. The form, so so I, I'm like, yeah, I'm a child of the Pacific Northwest and don't own a single plaid shirt. <laughs> uh, when I was 10, my parents got divorced, and I, I ended up with a stepbrother. And somewhere in that time frame, uh, and I don't know if it's sort of seven, I wanna, I'm going to go with sort of 77, 78-ish time frame. I was back east for see my dad for Christmas. And it was right when uh, the second Clash album came out, which was give him give him give him enough rope, and then um, and the Devo album, the first Devo record was out. My stepbrother brought those home, and he was listening to them, and that changed that that that's that's what it was. You know, give him enough rope changed my fucking life. I, I went back to Seattle. I had 113 prog rock, you know, albums. I took them to Cellophane Square. I sold them, and. Wow. And that I mean, I, I, I became a fucking punk, you know, a punk, quote unquote, right. which, you know, you can't be growing up in fucking middle class America, you know, by the true definition. But I came, I became a punk overnight um, because I heard, you know, I heard that song. I came home. I bought the first two albums by the Ramones. I bought the Sex Pistols record. And uh, and that was it. Getty Lee was out. Getty Lee was out. I was like, those guys, that, you don't need that many fucking drums <laughs> neil <laughs> and it, it, yeah and if and if and if you're getty lee you gotta play keyboard with your feet because right. your fingers are busy and right. your mouth is like uh, incredible musicians i listen yeah. to them now, like i and i got righteous about it as anything i was into i kind of got get righteous about um and then later i recover and i go you know getty's fucking man yeah he's a good bass player. yeah and, and alex life's i mean i like Okay, I and that's that'd be like uh, kind of that'd just be my underhand my 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 sideways shout out to uh, Kurt Smith, right on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> fellow Rush. Well, this fan. is quite a confessional, actually. The <laughs> punk rocker that listened to prog rock. I mean, that's a pretty good enormous cast exclusive right there. So again, let's let's keep yeah. working on this picture of you um, in Seattle, kid. Who's who flipped over to punk rock? Where does climbing fit into it, or when does that appear it's, in the scene? Um, so, having sort of grown up, you know, around mountains, and I was a, a park ranger, um, and which which is why we I was happened to be born in Yosemite. I was actually born in the clinic right. there, so I can say I was like born in the valley. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we were to Hanapakash, which is you know one of the sort of campgrounds and places near Cayuse Pass in. Uh, uh, at Mount Rainier. And then it was time for me to go to school. He wanted to get a PhD. Um, and so we moved down, moved down to Seattle. My dad was not a climber. He was very risk averse. In fact, um, he, he, he wasn't sort of your interpretive ranger. He was a law enforcement park ranger, which means he was a federal cop, which, um, which I just, you know, use that to sort of 
um, excuse my issues with authority right. um, that, that I sort of have always had. But, uh, but d- despite moving to the city, every weekend we would either go, you know, overnight, sort of backpacking in the summer or skiing at the Mountaineers Lodge at Snoqualmie Pass in the winters. So I'd always had, you know, sort of a relationship with the outdoors in the mountains. And there were books in the house about mountains. There was always the REI catalog. You could count on a good photo of Walter Bonatti in the REI catalog whenever it came out at that time. And so I got enamored with these stories about climbing. And something, sometime, I think in 1979, for my birthday, my mom gave me a copy of The White Spider. And I graduated from high school that year. And I've just decided, like, I really think that I want to try and do this. Being... I, I could run two miles from my house down to the artificial rock wall at the University of Washington, which is sort of one of the first outdoor, you know, artificial rock walls. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Sherman Rock was the other one that was in Seattle at the time. And uh, and I would go down there some a lot of times at night because it was lit and I would just hang out and I would try and climb up stuff and I'd fall down into the gravel and then I'd maybe just, just sort of standard progression. There was a point there in Seattle, I was, um, I was bussing tables at a restaurant and right behind the restaurant was a store called Early Winters. Bill Nikolai had started that company with a guy named Mark Fielding. Um, Bill Edwards and Ron Zimmerman uh, came in later. And uh, Nikolai had, the, had designed the Omnipotent, which was this four-pole four you know, tunnel tent. Um, Nikolai had this, uh, this integrated rainfly double-wall tent thing. And, uh, and then they started a the company, and they, they started making Gore-Tex garments and this and that. That was right behind this restaurant. And every time I had a break or lunch, I would go over and hang out with those guys talk to him about climbing and there was a guy there named dave khan um and i consider him my first climbing mentor and eventually he said you know this restaurant thing man you should just get a job with with the company and you know you can't work in the retail store because you're a punk kid who knows fuck all but you could get a job in the early winters factory which is also in seattle down on third and yesler and that's i went and applied for a job and i got a job uh um, my, my first job there was cutting fiberglass tent poles so I'd dress up in a full sort of Gore-Tex suit um, because when you're cutting fiberglass with power tools, this fucking fiberglass dust goes everywhere. So I had like a respirator mask and these goggles and, and, I, would cu- and I would cut <laughs> these tent poles. And then I'd glue the couplers on and then, you know, thread the shock cord through them. That was my first job in the outdoor industry. And there were two guys there, a guy named Brad Keith and another guy named Andy. And Andy's, and I was thinking about this earlier. I'm like, what the fuck was Andy's family name? Don't remember. Um, and, uh, and I, I had, and I told them um, that I was a climber, but I'd never been, right? Uh, except for the University of Rockwall. So they go, hey, we're going this next weekend to Peshastin Pinnacles. Uh, do you want to come? I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll go with you guys. <laughs> fuck, fuck, fuck! I'm finally gonna go. Um, are we gonna use ropes? Anyway, so I show up with a pair of like Vasque Hiker Two boots. Like I had sticky rubber was around and they had rock shoes, but I didn't, which they obviously knew immediately that I had never been before or I would have appropriate footwear. Anyway, but I had a harness and this and that. And we, and we went climbing and, and so I top ropes and stuff at Pashas. And the next day they said, hey, we're going to go up and do uh, outer space on Snow Creek Wall. Sort of five, eight-ish, six pitches or and so I think the rock face is a thousand feet or something. And, and um we got a fairways up there and I kind of fucking freaked out. Really? Oh yeah. Turned out I'm afraid of heights essentially. And, um, and, and, and sort of from that ca- that, that cascade of, of, of events that would have been sort of 1980. And then I went on a, um, I went with Dave Kahn, drove out to the Tetons probably a month after my, 
first experience. I had bought crampons. I bought a pair of foot bangs. I bought a low big bird because they were like, that was the highest tech stuff at the time. I'd tried to climb the pear tree in my backyard with the ice axe and the crampons and ended up with having to get stitches in my head um, when the tool popped and, you know, I didn't wear a helmet until I don't know when. Really. Right. Uh, anyway, um, so I went on this mountain instructor and tra- training course in the Tetons, which was put on by Exum because Dave was going out and I just kind of paid and faked my way into it again. And, um, and the instructors are, it was Dave Carmen, Harry Frischman, Peter Lev, Kim Schmitz, Chuck Pratt, Yvonne Chouinard. Those are the instructors on this course. They're like my first climbing instructor. I mean, it was like the fucking A-team came right. out. Yeah, totally. And um, I ended up doing the upper west face of the Grand um, with Les Lloyd um, leading. So Yvonne was leading the rope, traverse out the Owen Spaulding and find these ice runnels out there. And so we d- traversed out and Les led every pitch. And I just, you know, was like losing my, every time we, you know, I'd look down and fucking lose my mind again. And, but that was sort of my first time ice climbing was this incredible experience with, you know, watching Yvonne do his thing. Like, yeah, one axe, one, you know, pair of crampons, not that hard. Why place any gear? It's not hard. Let's just do this. Fantastic. So what were you doing to deal with the heights thing? Just getting used to it? Um, I, well, I, I kept trying. Starting to climb with a guy in Seattle named Andy Nock, who had come into the early winter store and a very forward-thinking guy. And I was having these fantasies about climbing and what I was going to do with it. And this guy, Australian guy named Michael Reinberger had come through and, and I'd met him at the early winter store. And he was on his way back from trying to climb Changabang. And uh, he ended up in the early winter store in Seattle. We started talking about climbing and he told me about this. There's this thing called the Fang on that glacier below Changabang. You know, it's a 6,000 meter peak. And he said, the east face of this thing, the granite is so white, you can't tell when it turns from snow to rock. It's the most amazing thing. I'll send you some pictures of it. I'm a like, young kid. I'm like, <laughs> so, you know, I start like trying to find anything I could in any book ever um, of uh, of the fang and there's actually there were actually found a couple of pictures in Dougal Haston's book about climbing Changabang and then Reinberger actually eventually sent me the two prints of this of this face and I was like fuck that's what I'm going I'm going next year a ridiculous fucking thing that is to think so what how old are you at that point? 20 okay maybe right yeah 20 it was at 81 sometime that winter I was out um, with Andy we climbed the north face of Dragon Tail in winter in Telemark ski boots because we had to ski up the thing and then we were on the twin sisters which are near mount baker and we'd climbed the north face of the north twin sister and i think we're going over to the south face and i kind of flipped out and told Andy i gotta go down he's like the fucking weather's perfect the climbing's not that hard i'm just like i can't be here and then he he just said you need to get your shit together man you talk about like going to the himalayas next year and all this great stuff you're gonna do and you're fucking afraid of heights you can't deal with your fear you need to get you know, to do something. I was like, oh my God, no one's ever talked to me this way. <laughs> At that time, I was busting tables in a different restaurant. One of the guys there, a guy named Gary Smith, Vietnam vet, very capable fellow, was studying at the Seattle Kung Fu Club. And I kind of explained this whole story to him. And he just goes, dude, you got to quit climbing. You need to start studying martial arts. You're never going to get a handle on your mind unless you do this. And I'll take you down to the school and I will introduce you. And after that, you're on your own. And he did. And we would work shifts through the night. My shift at that restaurant was 10 at night till five in the morning. And, you know, we'd get off work. I'd go to his place. He was, he taught me how to play go. And I think I probably did a lot of cocaine with him and, you know, cause it's the restaurant business. Why, you know, why wouldn't you? Um, and, uh, and then I started studying. I spent a, um, a, a year 
or so at the Seattle Kung Fu Club um, under Sifu John Leong, very basic stuff. And uh, then three or four months, something like that, at a, at a different school afterwards, and then started climbing again. And it was, and, and that ho- the whole martial arts experience was sort of life altering in that way. That, and it wasn't like I'm master of my fear or anything, just like I'm comfortable with it because I've been having to look at, you know, deal with people who are trying to punch me. And that was close enough, you know, for my brain at the time to, um, and I didn't come back. I wouldn't say I came back and I'm like, now I'm fearless climber or whatever. I was always a scared climber to the last day I ever went climbing. But, but there, that, that process of going through that sort of martial arts experience and not climbing at all, um, during that, that full on one year. And then I started again, um, another young kid who was working in the restaurant. I always, and now I can't mark. And his family, you know, it's just shitty to get old, man. You start losing your memory. (laughs) I used to blame it on high altitude. Now I got it. The the fact that you even can attempt to recall his name is impressive. So (laughs) don't worry about it at all. He's called the other Mark. Right. That was what, because we were both Mark. Mark. And, and he, and, uh, and we started rock. I mean, he was quite accomplished. He's been to Yosemite. We would climb at index and Leavenworth. We eventually did, we, we thought we did the first ascent of the west face of the Kolchak Balanced Rock. It was a route that I named Death Party. Because um, <laughs> why wouldn't you? It's a gun club song, actually. Right. And it was off a five-song EP that came out after the uh, the Miami record. See, you're not it, getting old. You can recall. Yeah, I, there's certain facts. things I yeah. can recall anyway. Uh, <laughs> but we went up and, um, and uh, did what I thought was the first ascent. And then some other local, I think a guy named Tom Bowman or something, had done it um, a couple of years earlier. And then I'd gone back and actually two years later probably and, and uh, freed it with Daniel Pesca, sort of 511D-ish um, thing. I tried to solo it in the winter once and got up there and, uh, you know, four or five pitches up and got stopped by a storm. And so <laughs> my Northwest climbing experience. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, this is, it's pretty extensive. I, I thought it was sort of like you had, you had been up there and then, and then kind of instantly bailed to, to the greater ranges, but. No. I mean, obviously, you're putting in in the time. Let me ask you a couple questions. Yeah, because I, I can I'm, see you've been furiously yeah, sort of I'm, I'm waiting to get. I'm waiting <laughs> to get into into it. But you know, one thing that I think uh, defines at least a lot of the narrative around you is this idea of is that you go in super deep. Like when you when you when you find something, you go in, in super deep. And then reading your writing, you know, it's like you can be black and white, like podcasting. Okay, now I'm good with it, you know, like, yeah. So help me understand, like, that part of of this punk rock kid, this kid that was getting into climbing. Like, the reason I, I ask this is because, you know, there's all these, there's a lot of these sort of very important decisions that you made. And, I, and you said you were 20 years old, and then you stopped climbing, you go do martial arts. And the things that were going on around you with other 20-year-olds, did it just go by or you just didn't have time for I mean what was your attitude towards what most 20 year olds would be doing at that point and as soon as I started climbing I I don't think I noticed another 20 year old for till I discovered girls or so right. I don't know I mean I joke about that but uh, um I, I don't think I noticed necessarily other than um you know if I would go to a live music show or right. you know a, I was dating a girl who was my age or something like that. But as soon as I got focused on climbing, it's all I wanted. I, I mean, it was, you know, when people joke about, yeah, we, we ate and slept and breathed, you know, X 
Right. It was kind of that because I had, I had an, in my imagination who I could be, you know, what my potential was, who I could become. And obviously because of the things that I had read and written, I mean, or, or, or read that had been written, the people that I admired for their, you know, it's, it's Bonatti, it's Messner, um, it's Wojtek. I mean, it, th- th- these are the, 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 and I had no doubt that I was going to, I was going to be one of them. Right. But knowing and being fairly, I mean, very cognizant of my actual capability mm-hmm. at the time, I realized, okay, this, there's only one way to do this and it's to, to do it all in. Right. Well, we talked earlier tonight about a friend of ours who we thought, you know, was extremely successful, but the amount of success never really convinced her that she was successful despite. So in other words, the evidence was there that she was successful and, and yet she sort of pretended it, it wasn't there, no matter how much it mounted. It sounds like and, in some ways there was a little bit of the opposite with you, like, oh, I'm afraid of heights. And were you getting good feedback from, from these these people around you in terms of like, or were they like your friend that was like, dude, you're supposed to go to the Himalaya? Give me a break. Like, beat it. <laughs> you know, what, what was your sort of, fantasy versus the evidence around you where was it whatever i was doing it changed my idea pretty quickly in 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 the sense that that um yeah i got some negative feed you know andy knock i mean he he definitely saw the the, the you know the whole the, the problem right um but having him identify that was uh, you know quite helpful because many times we don't know why we fail at things or why we can't do what we want to do but having someone sort of ruthlessly point that out um became you know was very helpful in a way but the but my just to say that like from 81 when that happened and we were already kind of like doing stuff stuff rad stuff yeah you know i i mean because because again he was very forward thinking so to to go and and climb you know the the north face of dragon tail um in ski boots or to go up and you know we, we'd gone in one year to try and do uh, the uh the north complete north ridge of stewart of mount stewart in the winter and we get there and john starter john tarver and one other guy was that was a rope of three and might have been cluin um, they were already there on it. And so we were just like, okay, they're already trying it. Uh, you know, etiquette basically says we got to go do something else. So Andy and I did the, um, uh, climb the ice cliff glacier route and, and watched those guys on the North Ridge, um, which they didn't, they didn't make it that time. But so we were, I was just like, kept trying these, these hard things because I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to. Right. And or that it was hard and that I needed to have at least five years experience before I go try that thing. Well, fuck it. That's the beautiful thing about climbing is you can go try the hardest route in the world tomorrow. Like there's no you don't have to like beat all these other teams. You don't have to go through like an organized playoff kind of thing. It's there. It's available. You're going to fail on that route, but you can you have the opportunity and you have the opportunity to travel where these routes are. It's and it's it is sort of like I think it's one of the most, you know, free, if you will not financially, but just like open sports because you decide the, your own level of involvement. So I was already doing these things. And then by probably it was, it would have been 83. I was working in a North face store in Seattle. Um, and John Krakauer came in and he'd, he'd got an assignment from climbing magazine to do an ice tool review and he needed someone to go do it. And so we went to get, you know, I was like, I'm game. Yeah, let's go. And so we went and did this thing. And then, uh, 
I mean, I, I, it would be hard to have to kind of look, I'd have to go back and look at some old writing to figure out what and why he thought I might be qualified to go with him to the North Face of the Eiger. But he got an assignment from Outside Magazine um, and didn't, he didn't have a partner and uh, somehow was able to convince them that, you know, I was, I could take pictures and he was going to need a photographer as well as a climbing partner. And so my first trip outside of the U.S., apart from um, going to Canada for a swim meet or some shit, um, uh, was to, to, you know, fly to the Switzerland, fly to Zurich and take the train and go to try climb the Eiger with John. And that was, would have been September of 84. Okay. When that went down. And that, and that, and that, and that was it. That was like, and then the floodgates were open. Right. Because now you're standing below the Eiger. So the white spider, the whole thing. So fucking terrifying. Right. Like, except I was also, for some reason, super confident. I mean, I didn't, I was, I was there with, with John, who's right. got, you know, as far as like track record goes, the guy was, was baller. I mean, to, to solo the devil's thumb, you know, back in the day, first ascent of ham and eggs, you know, but you know, a bunch of, bunch of stuff in and around Alaska, like, you know, and so I was, I, I was certainly confident in him that if, that if I had any sort of, you know, I showed up with any weakness that he would be able to cover. We ended up in this total shit weather, you know, our, our tent camp destroyed by the fun, um, et, et cetera. But you know, whatever. And it was like the wettest September since 1864 when we were, um, there and we, basically sat there for three weeks in bad weather. And then there was one sort of period where there's a forecast of like a good day and a half. John said, look, I got some friends who've climbed this. It's going to take us this long. And so I, I want to, I don't want to go up until we have like a three day forecast. So there's one night, there's like a, you know, day and a half, maybe there's going to be good weather. I'm like, okay, we're not going up there. Um, and we're staying at Kleine Scheidegg. And so the, you know, the, series of hotels and little train station there below the Iger. And, uh, and that night there happened to be a party and yeah, fuck it. Yeah. I drank some, I took some painkillers and sometime around two in the morning, I was like, I'm going to go climbing. And so I went back to our tent, which had not yet been destroyed by the fun and packed some shit and like, I'm going to go solo North face of the monk. I think Haston did a route up there and I know it's gotta be that cool on the right side of the face. And so I started put my headlamp on and started walking and, you know, walked up the railroad tracks and then cut off and crossed over the glacier, fell and, you know, punched through into a couple of crevasses, say, you know, did the Jesus move a couple of times to sort of stop myself from going further. Didn't end up going further. Sun comes up. I'm at the bottom of that face. I can't, there's no fuck. I look down what I've just done. Right. And realize, okay, I can't go. I'm not going back. Now I got to climb. Now I'm, and this was sort of perfect samurai tradition of put your back against the wall. Mm-hmm. And so the only way out for me was up. So that was the, the first hard route or big route that I sold. I mean, it's TD plus or whatever is what they would call it. There's, uh, there's probably some sections of 80 degree ice. Uh, and so I got up that thing and um, traversed across the upper part of the Guji face and then dropped down to the train station at, you know, whatever the little call between the Iger and the, or between the, um, the monk and the Jungfrau. Anyway, I got on a train and I came back down and <laughs> like, and then, and then my life was, and, and from that point, my life was forever changed because right. eventually the weather got good. John and I tried the, uh, uh, tried to try the North Face of the Iger. Um, he 
uh, in his wisdom, I mean, it had, it had been snowing for three fucking weeks. Right. So when the weather got good, uh, you know, the face was in pretty horrible condition. We spent one night um, below the rote flu, did the Hinterstoiser, got up, climbed uh, up onto the sec- what would be the second ice field. Uh, so climbed the, the, the really nice two pitches in the ice hose or whatever, pitch and a half. Um, and then John was just like, look, dude, there's too much snow. I was super ambitious still like, <laughs> also, you know, scared. Right. <laughs> but thinking that the right thing to say was no, let's go up. Um, anyway, uh, wisdom prevailed. We went down past, but uh, on our way down, Christophe Profi and Sylviane uh, Tavernier were on their way up and Chris and Profi was short, short roping her. You know, John and I had been belaying pitches. We were super slow and they're just moving super fucking fast. And he's short roping her. And, um, uh, and they got up a little bit, um, they, I think they got up to the Hinterstoiser and turned around at that point. We meet them later in the bar, um, so, you know, outside some hotel and we're just like, and John's just like, ah, oh, fuck, I got to go home. And, and Profi looks at me and he's like, oh, you, you and I said, I need, I'm going to stay here. I, I'm going to try and, you know, I want to do more climbing. And Profi was, you know, in the English that he had at the time, he's just like, oh, you must come to Chamonix because it's the best in the world, you know, as French folks. French climbers certainly do. And uh, he's not wrong. Um, he said, you must come. So John got on a plane home. I took a train to Cham and soloed five big routes there that, that fall. Wow. And, um, and then went back for, you know, for four months the following summer. Ended up that summer with um, doing a few, did, I climbed the, uh, the Walker Spur, the north face of the, the northeast face of the Peace Bedeal, um, and the north face of the Iger with Eric Perlman. Um, a dude from uh, Colorado named Alan Bradley was with us on the Iger, and um, I climbed the Grand Ca- the the Bonatti route on the Grand Cap. Uh, Jeff with Jeff Lowe. That was when I first met him. Um, he made a free ascent. I made a follow the rope ascent. It wasn't a great year because I got there, had made plans to climb with Roger Baxter Jones, and he'd gotten he'd been killed with a couple of clients on the north face of the Triolet, like probably three or four days before I arrived. And uh, so I got to, to Chamonix, went to his house. His wife at the time, Christine, was there. And she's just like, he's, he's gone. And first climbing mentor, Dave Kahn, had already, been, I mean, he, he got killed in 81. Like shortly after our trip in the Tetons, he got, he, he, uh, got killed on the Drew. And, um, and so those were sort of first couple of experiences with, you know, that something that became a really big part of my climbing career was, you know, all the, all the people who died. And so I left my shit at, at a place where I was staying, got on a train. Um, I don't know why I thought it would be a good idea to go to Switzerland and solo the North Ridge of the Peace Bedeal, but I thought it would be a good idea. And I went with a girl I'd met on the train down from Amsterdam and had a wonderful time, you know, kind of hiking and cruising around in the right there on the sort of Swiss Italian border. Um, Sold that route, came down, realized, okay, my head's fine. I don't have to worry about myself in relation to this stuff. And took the train back to Chamonix and then that, uh, and then stayed for another, whatever it was, three and a half months. Well, yeah, let me ask you that. So <laughs> kind of projecting myself into that situation at that age. So we're talking early, early 20s. Yeah, 23. Yeah. You know, did that, those things like you just said, oh, you made plans with the guy and then you showed up and he was gone. Yeah. I mean, did it just bounce off of you, do you think? Oh, fuck no. No? 
No, I mean, I, I mean, how, how did you internalize it? Did it? It it didn't. If it had bounced off, like I would have called somebody else. You know, oh, I right. like gone to the neighbor's house and gone. You know, or whatever. Right. You know, the the thing was, but but I had already you know sort of established this relationship when I'd been there the the year before with with RBJ and and uh, I, I don't know. It was a it was a weird thing. It was like how could how could he be just be, he was just here, right? How, and 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 I, I had a really strong emotional response to it, and and I mean I have. I mean, have the typical gallows humor that, you know, been around a lot of death people have, but I'm also incredibly sensitive. I'll probably, I mean, I mean, if there are certain, you know, there's certain people, you know, who were very important to me in my life and climbing career that if you bring up their names, I mean, I can't help, you know, uh, I, I, yeah, I, I just start crying because and especially when it's, um, Someone very, you know, very important. Someone like I'd been through stuff with, or someone who had shown a light on something that, you know, made me go in a certain direction, or you know, someone that I that I that I loved, and and um, um, and and I think the reason that I left at that point after um, Christine told me that Roger had died, um, I uh, was because I wasn't sure how I was how I was going to react, uh, because when I learned that um, Dave had been killed, I mean, they, like he was, they were on the Drew and they they climbed it and they were coming down and they hung the rappel and he, you know, he was, um, it's a guy I've corresponded with recently. I want to say his first name is Bill, um, who was with him and, and, and Dave just said, I'll just solo back up and get it and, you know, pull off flake or something on, you know, when he was there with no rope. And, mm-hmm. and, um, and I remember exactly how that felt that like, oh, I had plans. I just like, and it was, I'd gotten a card, you know, the postcard from Dave, you know, two days before or something saying that, you know, that, you know, Chamonix, it's the center of the universe for alpine climbing. Or He actually used the word Sinosier, which I had to look up because I didn't know what it meant. But he said, you know, this is the, this is the Sinosier of alpine climbing fucking universe and you got to come here sometime. And then, you know, a couple of days later or whatever, some, you know, and this gets kind of muddled together. But um, at some point, you know, right around the time that card arrived from him. This guy Paul, who's manager of the early winter store, and I was actually working at the store at that point, came out and said, "Hey, Mark, you got to coming back, man. I got, I, I got to tell, I got to tell you something. I got some bad news." And and, and that just, and again, like, how could he be gone? He was just here, and um, so one of the reasons that when uh, th- that summer when I got to Sham and, and found out that the, you know, uh, Roger had been killed, um, was to, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen. Like, I, should I trust myself? Because I like I. Pl- I had soloed five big routes the, you know, not you know, six months ago or eight months ago here or whatever it was. And, and I had those plans again and I don't know what's going to like, how my brain is going to be. I need to go do something n- and not here. And, and then when I got the feet, you know, good feedback or whatever from solo in the North Ridge of the Peace Badil, like, okay, it's, it, it, I'll, I'll be, you know, my, at least my brain's going to be okay. I don't know about like my desire, mm-hmm. but I know that I'm not, at least I can trust myself to make decent decisions. Right. Well, the thing about Chamonix, and uh, I don't know if it's, again, we, we deal with all these myths in climbing a little bit when, when we're remote from it, when we're not yeah. there in Chamonix. And, but it, it feels like, especially as these advances in alpinism are made, that, or when a lot of people there switch to flying and things like that, that just like, you know, death there. Death sport is, capital of the world yeah, is what I like to call it. Yeah, it's like pretty common. Yeah, and uh, and in Kiss or Kill the book somewhere, you know, you describe a moment 
on the street of 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 Chamonix where you know there's just sort of a casual accounting of of somebody's death yeah. and it's like okay well then you know I'm I'm I've got some errands to run I'll see you later kind of a yeah kind of a vibe and so how were you as those things were happening I'm I'm kind of curious as to why one person might hang it up or be deterred and and you push forward closer to your own possible demise because that that's been a big i think theme in your climbing at least in that era is to to get closer to this edge or each season you know pushing it a little bit further towards whatever the limit might be drugs drugs no i mean no <laughs> i what i and what i the reference there is 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 you know, to being an addict of some kind is that, you know, what got you off last year is not going to get you off this year. Right. And, um, and, and, and what test you passed last year will no longer be a test this year. You, I need something harder to validate myself. And, and a big part of like the, the pressure cooker situation in Chamonix was like maintaining one's place in the food chain. And that doesn't, that, you know, what you did last year doesn't fucking matter. It's like, who's doing what right now? And, you know, and, and even if it's a sort of an unspoken hierarchy in that way, everybody, and, and there's not formal competition, but everybody knows what everybody else is doing in that period, like from sort of 84 through, I mean, I, I finally, you know, I was there for whatever, three weeks in 84, four months in 85, about six well, let's see, no, only a month or so in 86, then 87 there for in the winter for, you know, another month or so on the tail end of a Himalayan trip. Moved there full time in 88, stayed five years, finally left in 1993. So from that period, 84 to 93, the shit that was happening there, um, in just in terms of evolution of, of, you know, not only climbing and the enchantments that were getting done. Now it may seem totally pedestrian, but when Christoph Profi climbed the, you know, the north face of the Eiger, uh, north face of the Matterhorn and the north face uh, of uh, the Grand Jurass in the summer, albeit, you know, he did do the shroud on the Grand Jurass, so not the walker, but that's, was, and, and liaison between them all by helicopter. And, th and that in sort of a, I don't, I mean, it'd say single push it, but it was like a 24 hour period, essentially, right. when that went down. That was fucking huge. Right. I mean, I still have the copy of, you know, uh, the, the, the copies of two of the French magazines that came out at that time. He's on the cover. He's fucking running down off, the, like he's f actually running, you know, down off of uh, the Eiger, I think. And like, holy fuck, this is possible. This is fucking madness. And here I am, you know, trying to think, and I'm going to, you know, solo the Drew Coulard or something like that. And that's going to be, a, you know, it certainly would stretch me to my limits um, at the time. But what was happening with him, with Eric Escoffier, who, who, you know, that, that um, following summer of 86, I mean, he climbed an 8A um, uh, sport route. He'd done uh, the, uh, the uh, North, like the, the Crows with, uh, um, with Daniel Lacroix in, in, um, in the winter. And then you climb three eight thousand meter peaks in a month, like all in the same fucking year. And you're like, oh, this dude is like climbing eight a and like throwing down in the Himalayas, and uh, oh, this is what's happening. And right. okay, now there's now you put paragliders into this situation, and then all of a sudden people are flying off of shit. People are thinking they're going to fly off of shit, but they don't. And so there are dudes burning in left and right, and there's and then there's the whole fascination with you know young French men and cars, and then 
and that's producing issues. I mean, Escoffier's climbing career is basically cut short by a car accident because the whole deal was if you have to go to Grenoble, then on the drive back to Chamonix, the run is in the, the canyon just north of Alberville, and who's got the fastest time? And it's... <laughs> And all of these guys were like, a, you know, Michel Fouquet was in, was in the running for that, Eric Bilan, Escoffier. I mean, every, all those top guys, if they had to go visit a magazine in Grenoble, they would, you know, they'd try and fucking take the record on the way back. And Escoffier, unfortunately, you know, came around one of those corners and there was a gigantic fucking boulder in the road. And, um, and, and so from there, he took up paragliding and they crashed the paraglider and then, you know, and he I mean, fused hip and it was just like fucked up all kinds of ways. And, um, and, and the, the, the aggression with which guys were doing stuff in the mountains was insane. And to be there and to be like, oh, I'm nowhere. On, I mean, I'm not a part of this, this part of the food chain. Like, I'm not jumping up. Well, no, that's not true because I did take my first paraglider fight, flight courtesy of John Bouchard um, in sort of November 86 and, you know, flew for a couple of years and did some, you know, like I got involved in that, that scene flew off a couple of routes in the Alps um, that I had climbed to, you know, get back down to town. I think I carried on in the Alps. I think I carried my paraglider on. I want to say seven routes and flew twice. Okay. It's just not like the thing. Yeah. Mad period. <laughs> well, I mean, you probably just swept <laughs> up in it. Right. And, and, and it becomes normal. Right. In a way like, Oh, th like if I, if I went home, and told people what was going on here. Like, no one believes it, you know, in a way. I mean, there were a couple, my friend Jonathan Carpenter, um, you know, when, when Bouchard was started, you know, when he started feral paragliders and was making, I mean, I had a fucking, you know, 4.4 pound paraglider, you know, in 87. Right. That he'd made that, um, and we were flying with our climbing harnesses and, you know, like, just, it, I mean, it was, it was like the cut, you know, the, the sort of cutting edge slash bleeding edge of, of, what was happening at that time. Um, and so there were a couple of, there was, you know, Jonathan, you know, he got kind of swept up in my enthusiasm about the whole paraglider thing. And it's going to be the tool to allow, you know, big enchantments to happen in the mountains. Cause you climb this thing and you fly down and you land at the base of the next thing, you pack it up. You, it, it, it got put together by a couple of people. I mean, <clears throat> Ellen Gerson, Fred Vivant both did big enchantments using paragliders. So, so it was easy to get, you know, just their enthusiasm and comp, you know, apparent competence with it, right? Which is kind of a fallacy because it was a whole bunch of really good climbers just believed they were going to immediately also be good pilots, and it's not the same, turns out. And you know, Bruno Cormier, founder of Vertical Magazine, burned any. They were trying, guys were trying to, you know, basically like trying to fly from Chamonix to Martinique, like the first big cross country flights, and any number of people got fucked up with paragliders and I, and for the longest time and um, I'm not an air sports person. Like I, I, and, and I thought it was, um, you know, a number of friends who have either got, gotten really fucked up or dead with paragliders or base jumping. And it's not, I, I, I know where that road ends for me if I go down it. Right. Well, speaking of roads ending, what, what was the movement out of Chamonix then? Um, I mean, you could I, be, you could be that old gringo guy that, you know, is drinking pastis on the on the boulevard there in Chamonix still and reminiscing. Pontificating about <laughs> back in the old days. Um, for sure. But there was a... Uh, is there a it, French word for gringo? Uh, 
<laughs> Rican. <laughs> so the, yeah, you, you, t- you take the A off of you know the AM off American and okay. AME, and you put an apostrophe there, and you're like you're a Rican. Um, okay. <laughs> any, and and but I was a Rican, but I could speak, so it was a, I got a got a pass. So I had been soloing mostly, and occasionally I'd climb with a partner. You know, when I was living there, and and just realize the cultural differences. Like I've you know I climbed tried to climb a couple times with with Chuki. Um, and we actually took a trip to you know, Kazakhstan in the winter together. Um, I did a little bit of climb with Alan Gersen, Jean-Christophe Lefay. We uh, climbed together a little bit, but I just didn't rest. Like the thing, like I just didn't, like if we're going to use the rope, we're going to put in anchors, right? <laughs> I, I don't like going up to a belay anchor and seeing one piece, you know, with no gear in between or like leading on a single eight mil. Now it'd be, you know, it's different. Rope technology is different now, but leading on a single eight at that time, which some of those guys thought was just fine like I, did, I didn't resonate with. And so I started um, Scott Backey's, um, uh, who, who I had formerly met in, in, in Chamonix with uh, Michael Gilbert in 89. He'd come over for a month. We got totally shut down by bad weather, did nothing. And then in the autumn of 93, it was shaping up to be one of the best mixed seasons I had seen. And I called him and I said, dude, I'll buy the plane ticket, but you need to get here. And Scott um, had a, a, a flexible enough work schedule that he got on a plane. And so that's what we did. The first ascent of birthright and the first ascent of there goes neighborhood. And, and, and I'd realized at that time, like I'd stopped soloing the last hard route that I'd soloed, I think it was March of 92. I was more in, you know, I'd tried one or two things after that, but I didn't have the head for it anymore. And, and I don't know. I was, I, I mean, the reason I stopped soloing is because I realized I'm not willing to die for these routes now. Whereas before I was, and 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 some of those things, I mean, if you look at the reality bath, for example, in the Canadian Rockies, that's February 88. This is the first ascent. It's not been repeated because people are, you know, people have less of a, you know, we're less maybe like careless with their lives than Randy and I were when we did it. And, but that changed for me. And I recognized that like, if I want to climb as hard as I technically am able to do, I need to have a partner and I need to have a rope because people, because we are, you know, now people are falling off stuff. And, um, and by the, and, and so when I, I was a bit fed up with France, um, I had tried to buy, you know, property there. It was, it, it was made particularly difficult for a foreigner. I thought I would stay there. I visited the States and Canada a couple of times in the winter. I was, um, there was a point there, sort of 92, I came out for a trade show or something and then spent a bunch of time climbing here, actually in Salt Lake. Um, and then I went to the Canadian Rockies. Chris Noble and I had started working on a book, sort of a thing that North Face was maybe part of and this and that. And we'd shot a bunch of pictures here in the Canadian Rockies. And I realized, like, I really liked road trips and I liked trucks. And then Brent's Hawks, I was on a, you know, up in the Tetons at some point and it was too shitty to go climbing. And Brent said, Hey man, let's go to the shooting range. And then that was, then that just opened up all of a sudden, the sort of period of competitive shooting. Um, there's not a courtesy. shooting range in Chamonix. Uh, no, it turns <laughs> out <laughs> sort of, um, sort of like early 1940s. There was, uh-huh. but yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, but I'd, I'd come back and had enough of a taste of the good parts of the American West that I wanted to be here. So we did we moved moved here to Salt Lake. And for a bunch of years, I was not as good of a climber. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you a couple more questions yeah, before we leave Chamonix altogether. <laughs> 
when you're talking about soloing on these routes, and this is just a little technical counter yeah. question, but we're talking about free soloing or are you rope soloing hard pitches? What does that look like? Um, free soloing always. Because yeah. yeah. to me, it's just like it, it's movement based. Right. And it wasn't, I mean, I wasn't looking to do like the hardest technical. It wasn't hard mixed climbing. Right. I mean, but, I, but I mean, some of the routes that I, that I climbed, I mean, they, I guess they would be considered hard. I mean, I th- you know, I, I think it's considered hard until someone skis down it. Right. And then after that, it's no longer, you know, you can't call it hard anymore. So like the, the, the super cool R, which is, you know, it's got, uh, I, I don't think there's anything vertical on it, but it's, you know, sort of 85 ish. These are like basically frozen waterfalls that form mm-hmm. in the mountains, or mm-hmm. sometimes they're quite thin. Um, north face of the Grand Charmos, every North face in the Argentier basin. Um, and, and the, you know, uh, I think I made the first solo ascent of the Boivin Gabarou route on the north face of Les Droites, which it's a thin, hard ice right, climbing, right. you know, but, but, uh, yeah, but like I said, it's movement. Like if, if, if I have if the rope comes out, I mean, it, the rope comes out, you lose a bunch of time right. and that's if you have a partner, the rope comes out by yourself, then it's even more so unless, you know, let's just say, um, I, I mean now you know, okay, how am I going to handle, how am I going to like hang my pack and right. you know, do all this shit and I'm going right. to rope solo and I'm going to wrap down and I got to fucking clean the thing because I'm going to need some gear up. This like doesn't make, it doesn't make sense. Right. Well, I've or just always yeah. tried, I mean, the, the alpine climbing is tricky for me because of my limited experience with it. So viscerally, I'm always trying to think about what it feels like having free solo rock climbing, you know, and then yeah. you read about, I'm not sure where we what we feel about Thomas Cezanne's claims about the kind of things that he climbed in his in his plastic boots. Yeah. Which sounds incredible to me. Um guy was a fucking good climber. You though. know, so Stevie Hassan described to me soloing a hard route in Chamonix, same sort of thing, like five eleven climbing in the wintertime type of type of operations. Yeah, so, so like it's kinda a, like the like a big thing that he did. Like right. he he so he uh he sold the soloed the Walker and right. Walker Spur and the Grand Jurassic yeah. in winter in like eight and a half hours. Right. I mean that guy total I mean uh, like you that's baller with a capital B what that right. guy has done in his life. Reinventing himself for different forms of climbing for sure. snowboarding down Cho'oyu. I mean that amazing. And I mean that's a four thousand foot route. And it's not like you can't see your house from there, you know. Many routes in Chamonix, like I think, so let's see, from Beyond Good and Evil and Birthright, I could, and there goes the neighborhood. I could bivouac on those routes. I could look down and see my house. Oh, <laughs> like, or the house I rented. But that's like, which the, is a very weird thing to yeah. be like. I'm about to die, and there's a, you know, and there's people with binoculars, you know, right. or whatever. Like, yeah, like Iger sanction. Yeah, a little. <laughs> Good weather, bad weather, our weather is good for climbing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, the intro to the podcast is. Thank you. Yeah, I, I got to it. I think I just got to it first. <laughs> part, part, part of the whole getting there first uh, helped with that one. So. Yeah. But yeah, so the Chamonix thing, I really find an interesting contrast to like what ended up being sort of your, what became kind of your Alaska part of your, your career. And I kind of want to ask a little bit about, so you moved to the West, you started climbing back in this part of the world, Yeah, you know, Canada, Alaska, you had already made relationships with like Barry Blanchard and, and those folks that having climbed in Chamonix. Well, um, so I met Barry would have been February of 88 in the Canadian Rockies. Okay. And then 
and then he then that later that year um so he and Ward Robinson and Kevin Doyle they were and and uh, Albie Soul actually had permits to go to Nangaparbat and Everest um and they uh, and Albie had to drop out and so they were looking for a fourth Barry ran you know they found us they you know Randy and I had the wild things climbing team you know Ford Aerostar on the Banff Jasper Parkway and one day it was frozen and we were stuck at the base of the weeping wall and uh and Barry showed up um and I think he might have been with Ward and um uh, um, or maybe he was with Peter Arbeck. Anyway, they, he showed up. We started talking. The next day we went climbing. We did Carlsberg together. And, uh, and after, you know, we climbed Carlsberg together, he goes, Hey dude, do you want to go to Himalayas? It's like all expenses paid trip of your dreams sort of, except it's might be a nightmare depending on, right. um, and so we had already done those two trips together, but like, like I moved to Chamonix full time on the way back from Nangaparbat. Like I got on a plane okay. in Pakistan and I got off in Geneva with my two duffel bags and that was it. And then when he and I went to Everest, I, um, which was some months, you know, I'd, we had very little time in between those two trips. Um, when I came back from that, I like I was fully, fully ensconced with my 90 day tourist visa. Right. Just don't walk. <laughs> just don't go through the border. Exactly. Did you, um, is the Nanga Parbat, is that the finding of the pack? That is the finding of the pack. Okay. I can't <laughs> that, let no, that go. That is, that is more like, no, that is the losing of the ropes is the what that is. The losing of the ropes, right, right, That's right. how I prefer to see it as opposed right. to the finding of the pack, which was right. just like the, the happy ending. Yeah. I mean, so l- I can't let that go. No, you can't. Sorry. <laughs> oh, fuck. I mean, it's in, it's in Kiss or Kill, um, but yeah, it's pretty, pretty much a story we can't just uh, leave behind. It might. I, I'm just going to pour a little more. Okay. This does say it's whiskey. <laughs> I mean, this is, I'll just preface this. This is, this is one of the great climbing stories. I mean, I, it, it uh, I don't know. It's, it's an, it's an incredible story. So just, uh, you yeah, know, lay into I, it, man. I, I, if I treat anything too lightly, call me out. Cause okay. it, 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 I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable with it. Um, it took some years to re kind of re like mentally, uh, readjust, readjust to the new reality after that. But, um, so, uh, Barry and Kevin, uh, and Ward, um, they had, they had pulled, I mean, they had a permit for, uh, to climb the RuPaul face of Nanga Parbat, which is, which, um, above water has the greatest relief of any mountain in the world. I think Mona Kea or something like some Island somewhere, which has more, if you could climb that deep into the ocean, but, um, but it's, uh, 14,000 vertical feet of, of relief. It had been climbed once at that point uh, in 71 by a large, I think it was at, at, at heart a German expedition, but you, no, we can't call Reinhold or Gunther Messner German. We have to, they're you know, from South Tyrol. So, um, so they were on that trip. And so, the, so and it basically took uh, the, that, that team three and a half months of fixing ropes and stocking all the high camps and that, that kind of thing. Um, to, to, you know, to get up to a point where they could leave the fixed ropes behind and go to the summit and get back down. Um, and, uh, I think, t- so two guys had maybe already done, two of the team had already done it. And then Reinhold and Gunther went up second or, 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 or it was the reverse of that. But anyway, Reinhold and, and Gunther had, had gotten to the top and, um, and they had taken the decision to try and descend the Diamir face down the other side because they thought it was too, it was too far, too dangerous, were too wasted, you know, whatever the decision was. So they start going down with no knowledge of, you know, a giant face. It's only, and it's only like 4,000 feet shorter than the RuPaul. 
Um, so descending a massive Himalayan peak into unknown terrain. To where? Yeah, to, to, to where? To where you're going to be, like when you end up, like where you can, and, and, and uh, unfortunately, um, Gunther died in an avalanche on the, on, on that descent. Reinhold survived. And, uh, and, 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 and so this, this face, like when, when we got there, I mean, there's like, it's the Naga part about it sort of sits off on its own. It's not yet the Karakoram. I think it's still called part of the Himalayan range, but it gets a lot of serious fucked up weather. And a, a lot of people had been killed. I think we were, um, when we got there, the, the total number, because I'm pretty sure I wrote an essay called 60 while I was there, which would have meant to me that 56 people had been killed on right. that mountain already. And I was, you know, we were going to be the, the next four. <laughs> yeah, 57, 58, 59, right. 60, you know, whatever. Um, and and uh, so, so the idea, even though they had taken three months, the idea for us was to climb it in alpine style. So right. and isn't, isn't that sort of the the scene of kind of breaking Messner's Reinholds anyway, like feeling towards that kind of climbing or did he go on to keep doing that? No, for, he, he went yeah. on to keep doing that. He actually right. came, came back and soloed Nanga Parbat right. shortly thereafter. No, I know. I meant like the siege style, like, Oh, like, the, yeah, 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 for sure. For sure. For that, for the siege style thing, yeah. for sure. I, yeah. I, I believe that would have been the very last one. Right. And then it started on the whole Alpine style in the Himalayas thing yeah and so that, that's what i meant not not yeah. his career as a, as yeah. a himalayan climber yeah yeah i mean because it was it was I mean, oh. he's written a book about that and it's harrowing you know and oh. he lost his brother and and, and, and then there was a strange controversy about all around his brother dying and yeah you know, just kind of crazy i mean bullshit. it's just like yeah. the politics and yeah. backstabbing and sh the shit that you that like that you would never do up there to your to your brother, you know, right. your rope mate or whatever. But back down in the valley, everyone's fair game, and right. like, <laughs> uh, the fucking dirty laundry comes out. But um, anyway, so the, the idea was to try and do it in alpine style, and and you know, based on the acclimatization that that we had sort of done, or the idea, we're just like, okay, we're going to take five days of food, seven days of fuel, and we're going to get this thing done. Because how hard can and it's like it's it it it's four north faces of the Alps stacked on top, or th th three north faces in the Alps stacked on top of each other. And one of them, the first one's super fucking easy. Like we're hiking. Sure. What the hell? <laughs> what the hell? It's you just know? like, it's South facing. It's going to be warm. We won't need that many clothes. It's just, yeah. But just isn't the first one already it. higher altitude than anything oh, in the Alps? Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, but, well, not, not, not totally, but base camp, um, you know, the, the, the base camp that you could hike to in the, you know, the sort of meadow where the sheep and all that shit are, it's like 11,500 okay. feet or oh, something. Oh yeah, no big deal. So, so like there is bill. there. It's yeah. <laughs> I, I will tell you that when you land a paraglider at eleven five, it's fast. Okay, especially if it's like, you know, eighty eight, and you're like got a three to one glide ratio on it. Uh, but this is a climbing so, podcast, sir. Sir, yeah, I, exactly. Yeah, I have no <laughs> idea what you're talking about. Nobody listening does either. Yeah, three to one. That's a forty five degree slope. Just. Yeah. You okay. Know, that's not flying. That's falling. Roofers are, ju are just perked up. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so uh, um, there was a variety of acclimatization measures taken, et cetera. And, uh, um, and we launched on the face. And, you know, with a, you know, it, it seemed bare, you know, there's no weather forecast back. Like now, if you th sort of think about the technology now and you're realizing like guys are getting weather forecasts for Everest and how high the jet stream is going to be and how low it's going to, you know, what the winds and the temperatures and the, you know, from dudes sitting in, you know, at universities in places in other parts of the world, it's, right. it's, it's a, um, a, a pretty incredible thing. We were kind of flying by the seat of our pants. We had altimeters and it's like, all right, barometric, barometric pressure looks good. We need to go. 
And so we launched and, um, and, and the, the, the amount of climbing, and if I had these notes here, I mean, it was, it was stupid because the idea back then was like, you can do a thousand feet a day because that's what you can adapt to. And I think the first day we climbed 4,000 vertical feet and the next day it was, you know, 3,000 or something like that. I mean, we were just like speeding up this face. Ward was not fully acclimatized because he couldn't, um, during one of the acclimatization ascents, he'd like had these homemade boot liners and totally fried his feet. And so he couldn't come up to 7,000 meters on the shell route, which we had done and spent a night there already. So he wasn't as acclimatized and the higher we got kind of more, more that, that showed. And, um, day five, basically weather's been perfect for four days and, and we've climbed up quite high day five. We get into the, the final sort of the hard part, the, the Merkel gully named after Willie Merkel who perished up there, as I recall on the other side of the mountain. But, uh, um, we get up into that thing. It starts at, that opens at around 24,000 feet. And, um, and there's, there, and there's hard technical climb. Messner had said, yeah, the, the, the opening pitches of the North face of, uh, or, or the Merkel gully are as hard as the North face of the Matterhorn. And, and so, you know, we're actually having the ropes out and we're belaying and there's ice climbing involved and there's ice screws being placed and there's, you so know, it slows way down. It, it slows way down. Right. I, I mean, we actually, we, we had a pretty good, actually a pretty good system for moving as either two teams of two or one of four was, was yeah. um, a bit complicated. You know, that's how we were operating. We had two independent teams of two um, to start. And then once we got up uh, there, we, you know, it's, it, it doesn't make any sense for two guys to be take, you know, it makes sense to have one guy lead and the other guys, you know, come up behind. Right. Um, but we only had two ropes. And so it's basically, you know, one guy's on a kind of a cow's tail climbing with another guy. So there's two guys on the end of one rope and then one guy on the end of the other. Uh, and, and, um, and, and at this point, like, like I was, when the storm hit, <laughs> like I just put it that way, we claim it was utter surprise. Right. But looking back after we, you know, but, but later then looking back after and seeing the film, like the clouds had been boiling all day and it's evident in the pictures, but we were so fucking focused. We had no idea until basically this, you know, over sort of an one hour period, this cloud dropped, enveloped the summit and then the thunder and lightning started. And it was at a period of my climbing career where I was never, I didn't wear a helmet. Um, so I, I, actually had like a baseball hat because it had a visor on it um, <laughs> to keep the snow off my goggles or whatever. And uh, I'm sorry, it, but that image is like, that just got me just like, oh yeah, yeah, Boston Bruins, yo, right here. <laughs> Flat brim, you know, like, like I wish it had been that cool. But, uh, All right. Um, but it actually, it Was actually- Was that some sort of shamanee thing? I, well, no, that would have been headband. Okay. But, and, and that's what I was wearing on day one. Okay. <laughs> so what had happened, like anyway. day, day one, I was wearing a headband and it was super, and it was South facing. So it was super hot. And day two, I was just like out of my, out of my head. And so I'd like basically gotten sunstroke on the first day and, or some kind of heat injury, sunburned the top of my head. Barry had looked down on, on the top of my head when I was following a pitch at some point. And he's like, Oh fuck. That's why he's all fucked up. Cause I'm just like lobster red head. And, and, um, so he'd given me this, uh, this baseball hat to wear after that. And, That's so and then, ridiculous. And then recovered and I got strong again. You know, oh, I got like, cool. I got the sun, sunstroke went away or whatever the fuck. Um, anyway, the, so I'm up, we're up there in the Merkur Gully and the thunder lightning starts happening. And, and I've got this baseball hat on and there's, there's some point I recall distinctly thinking that I am being stung by bees. Right. Because like I'm just, so there's a metal button. Right, the metal button. The, I was about to say, the, yeah, that thing's lighting up. The metal button is attracting this electricity 
And so I'm just getting like zapped in the head and I'm like, fuck. And I'm like trying to swat these bees and Barry's looking at me like, you, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, you having some kind of seizure? I'm like, no, man, I'm, there's these bees. And he's like, dude, take your hat off. And so, and, and so they were wearing, and they had these, uh, we all had these, um, those guys did. They had, uh, Sun Ice had made them these suits and, and, and in the hood of the suit was a piano wire. So you could shape or make the, oh, right. the, the, the edge, the brim of the hood smaller to protect yourself from the, and those things were just like, almost like Jacob's ladder, like, right. like the electricity traveling on the wires of their hoods. And, and I'm just like, okay, now, and it's louder than anything I could, like I'd, okay, I'd been to some shows. I'd been to some right. loud rock concerts. Yeah, I was about to say it's rock and roll. <laughs> it's, yeah, except it's only the drummers here, right. <laughs> you know, or the guy playing the synth is just going like, right. you know, whatever, you know, Trent Reznor figured out was music later. Um, but this was, I mean, it was just like when the thunder itself went on, there's just this constant buzzing noise like that. And then when the thunder went off, it was loud. I mean, it was, it, 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 like it shook. I think if we hadn't been out of food, I would have shit myself. Like, it was it was like that and and Barry and Kevin they were just like hey we need to dig a snow cave and we'll just wait this out because that's what you do in the Canadian Rockies that's what you know Bonatti did that's what all those like all the fucking masters did and so we're up in this little basin above the 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 the, the Merkle Gully itself that Ford opens up and we're we're sort of a bit less than a thousand feet below the summit at this point I think um, and thinking, okay, we, this is storm's going to, you know, it's an th- afternoon thunderstorm. No problem. It's going to clear out. We'll, cl- we'll get to the summit tomorrow. So they start trying to dig a cave and every, and everything has been, just been avalanched away at this point. It's like filling up in the, in the bowl part of the funnel and then shooting down the, the stem and we're above there in the, in, in the bowl and they dig and dig and they can't like go like a two feet deep and hit rock and go two feet deep over another place and hit rock. And so we realized like, fuck um, we can't get a cave here. There's no place to put the tents up. We need to get back down to the base of the gully and this overhanging rock wall and get under that or it's going to get, because the snow is just getting worse and worse and worse. And can I ask you a question real quick? Yeah. So, <laughs> so when you, you guys are in a climbing in a team of four, definitely a hierarchy in climbing abilities is going to be apparent. Yeah. And, but when you're making these decisions, like, do you guys have a leader? Do you have someone that's being deferred to? Is there a discussion or just like, is it all instinct? Um, or is there, what's the combination of all that? So right then we were, we were actually down in terms of decision-making capacity. We were down to three because Ward was really altitude sick. Right. And he had been um, for the, for, for, you know, the, the, the day prior. He, you know, the, as soon as we kind of got above 23,000 feet where he had not acclimatized to that level. Right. Um, he was just slowing down. He was sick and, and, uh, so we're just like, all right, just getting back. We'll take care of everything. You know, as long as you can keep going. He's just like, yeah, I can, I can follow the steps. I can keep going. But he wasn't, in ter- cognitive terms, part of any decision-making. Right. Uh, so that's why I said Barry and Kevin were, like, working, you know, to try and make this, get this cave. And I was with, you know, and Ward and I were sort of partnered up at that point. And, uh, um, and so a little bit of decentral, you know, there's, but there's not, like, and there's no vote. There's not rock, paper, scissors. It just, it's a difference between, you know, somebody says something that makes sense. Right. Let's do that. Somebody says something doesn't make sense. Like, it doesn't make sense, man. Come on. Let's do something different because that sounds crazy. And uh, so at, at that point, there was, I, I would call us sort of three equals. 
and then you know w- once we couldn't get the cave the the decision was rapidly made like we need to get the fuck out of here and because it's only going to get worse we're in the sort of the 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 cone shaped part of the funnel and right. we've got like six six or seven rappels down this very narrow gully that's very steep and you know we don't have a ton of anchors so but it, anyway we you know first couple of rappels went fine it's like the 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 spin drift coming down the cool arts first it's ankle deep then it's knee deep and then it's kind of waist deep but it's not but it's just constant. Right. So, um, so it's, so it's not bad. <laughs> like there's no waves. Waste deep. Yeah. Spin drift constantly. No big deal. No. I, I mean, I think I said this the other night we were in this, or it's maybe it's in, uh, yeah, it's Kristen's movie. We were talking about fear and I just said, look above 23,000 feet. You don't give a fuck. Right. Like, like the, the lack of oxygen sort of reduces your ability to care in, in some way. At huh. least it did for me. And, and, and I think a lot of guys, like, I think they, you know, at high altitude, when they, when they fuck up and die, they were just sort of like looking at themselves, making that mistake and not caring. But we started going down and, and, and like I said, the, the spin just got deeper and deeper and deeper. And then, uh, and then we, we sort of go over this, you know, little break over. And now it's, you know, that the, the ice that we're sort of having to descend and, and repel down is really fucking steep. And so some of the spin drift is kind of shooting out over our heads and, you know, at that point, cause it's coming off the sort of flat, you know, the ramp and then the steep wall beneath get down a little bit further. I've got one, uh, I, I think one snarg. So the pound in ice screw that no one will ever, you know, remember unless they're aged. Okay. Yeah. All right. Got, All right you got, got it. A rack of those bad boys. <laughs> yeah. I kind of, I'm just like, man, that'd make a nice sort of wind chime on the porch. They do. I've it, seen them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so we're so so the four of us are on. We, we've pulled the ropes, and and so the idea was like, basically, you know, somebody guy goes down, gets an anchor, you know, clips in, backs it up with his tools if he can, and you know, this is before sort of. I mean, there would have it wasn't before the advent necessarily of the Abolikov or the V thread. But in those conditions, with that amount of snow coming down, it would have been impossible to, right. to make one. So, um, so we're having to sacrifice screws uh, and, and figure like, okay, well, you know, we just got to get out of here and we'll figure it out down lower. And fuck it. Um, and uh, so at some point, there's four of us hanging on one screw, um, and, and it's a single nine sixteenths inch webbing sling girth hitch to the eye of the snark. It happens to be the lucky sling that my friend Doctor Zipper made, which has seven bar tacks instead of five. And I, I don't know if that has anything to do with the outcome or not. They're both prime numbers, so both equally powerful. But <laughs> this one was the lucky one. It was fucking bright orange. And, um, and so we're all hanging there when the rumbling from above, which is not thunder. It's like very distinct sound of sure. like the incoming train, essentially. So enough snow had built up in some place that it finally like overloaded the slope and cut loose. And this gigantic and this big avalanche came down and I mean, it, it hit us and it drove and every, you know, we're not all sort of hanging off the ice screw until it hit us. And everybody's sort of standing on their front points, you know, you got a tool in maybe or whatever. And, and so this thing hits and knocks all of us immediately off. It's so strong. And, I'm, you know, and, 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 and you could say, Oh, it lasted five minutes or, or five seconds, or it lasted my entire fucking life. You know, it doesn't, time did not matter. Right. Um, and, uh, and, and it just kept pounding and pounding and pounding. And I was, you know, everybody had their sort of fantasies about what was going to happen. You know, okay, the sling's going to break. And the berries was that the sling, I think the sling was going to break. And we, we were just going to get like shot off into, you know, various different orbits in space or whatever. 
And I thought, oh no, the screw's going to pull and we're going to all be together in this, like tied to this sling with two 50 meter ropes, you know, wrapped around us in a fucking ball. And we're going to be tumbling, you know, 10,000 feet down this face. And then it, it got quieter and the pressure got a little bit less and I got a hand up and I could reach my ice tool and get my wrist through the sling and like, um, and, and I thought, okay, maybe now if the screw pulls, I'll be able to hold us with my ax. Sure. Yeah. As if, um, and, <laughs> and then, uh, and then it stopped altogether uh-huh. and, uh, and I was like, oh my God, the screw didn't rip. The sling didn't break. Like we are all still alive. I think Ward, Lord, Hey, Barry's shaking the ropes and screaming at him and Ward looks up and he's just like, you know, face just totally like his hood is packed with snow. Like he was apparently looking up when the thing hit hood is packed with snow packed in all around the goggles. It just fucked up. And he said something and it's in one of those articles. I can't remember. And it was like, we kind of thought we were all dead and we're still here kind of thing. And, uh, right. and so we, we end up, we managed to get down out of that, that gully. Uh, and I get off to, you know, get off to the side, to, into this protection of the overhanging rock and I start chopping a ledge because Ward is fucked up. Now he's hypothermic. He's basically his one piece suit has been force filled with snow sure. through the hood. Yeah. You know, um, and, and he'd already been altitude six. And so now he's got a bunch of shit. We got to take care of Ward. So I start chopping a ledge so we can get the stoves out and, 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 you know, make some hot drinks and get him warmed up. Maybe we can get him in a sleeping bag, you know, whatever. And, um, I'm just trying to separate myself from the incident. I was, I was the humanitarian. I was digging the ledge. I was taking right. care of the ill guy, you know, and that leaves Barry and Kevin. And so the last rappel down, the sort of core splits into two and there's a giant rib of rock and the, the anchor was on one side of that rib of rock sticking up and, and we needed to get on the other side. So, you know, I had done it and, and, uh, um, and, and, and Ward had done it and then and Barry had done it and then Kevin was up above and, I think it's Kevin, and he's and he, he basically sh- you know shouts I, like we're concerned that if we try to pull the ropes, the the the, the knot is going to hang up right. in this rib of rock, and the storm is still raging, and it's ten o'clock at night. We've been up and since five, and we've been on the face now for you know it's the end of day five, and so we're not that coherent. Right. One of the guys said you know basically says like hey the the uh, uh, I'm just going to drop the ropes and down climb. I'm going to let go of the ropes and down climb, and then somebody heard. You know, down below, okay, he heard let go of the ropes. Right. And so when the ropes got kicked off from the anchor above, they got let go from the bottom. And so the only two ropes, we're 13,000 feet up this face, and the only two ropes we have, which we are going to need to get down, disappear into the night. (laughs) No one notices. Because... You know, one guy's like, okay, I, I just, you know, Kevin, like, I'll just say it's Kevin up above. Can I, again, I can't remember. You know, I, he, he just, you know, tossed the ropes down and, you know, no longer his responsibility because somebody else had the other end. And then when, as we'll say, there's Barry at the bottom and he let go and he tossed the ropes because he heard Kevin tell him to let go of the ropes. He didn't know what was going on. So both of the ropes just sail off into the night beyond headlamp range with all the spin drift and all the shit coming down out of that gully and they disappear. We start taking care of uh, Ward. We get some hot drinks in us. I'm like, okay, we're going to down climb to our last bivy, sta- bivy station uh, or bivy site where there's already a ledge chopped. We'll put the tents up. So um, uh, I, I think, uh, so Barry and I have the t- each have a tent in our pack. So we go down first. Kevin's taking care of Ward. We go down and uh, I'm trying to put up one of the tents on the ledge and 
you know, these old uh, sort of Bibler style tents where the, the, the poles go inside, you got to put the bend in the pole to get the, the secondary end of the pole in through the front door. You got to hold on to the tent really fucking hard. Right. And so I was like pushing on the pole and not holding on to the tent hard. And I like developed enough tension in the pole that when I accidentally let go of the tent, it basically shot off the end of the pole into space. And I watched it like disappear down the slope. And, um, and Barry looked up and he's, and, and it, like at that point I was like taking the tent poles and folding them back up. And he's like, what's going on? I said, I just dropped the tent. And, um, uh, and it, he looked up kind of like right at the point when I was throwing the tent poles off because there's no tent. I don't need to carry the fucking poles anymore. So I get a shovel and I start digging a snow cave. And, uh, and so we, we, you know, the other two guys get down, Ward gets in the cave with me, um, and, uh, Kevin and Barry get in the tent. And then the next morning we wake up, it's still stormy. Obviously we're not going to the summit and we're now we're our, our five days of food is out and we've got two days of fuel left with which we can melt snow and drink. So and no ropes and no ropes, but we don't know that yet. We, <laughs> we, we know we only have one two person tent right. left and, and, and shovels. So, um, so I'm, uh, uh, war, you know, we're, we're kind of packing everything up and Ward's like, Hey, um, you know, the yellow rope, it's always been my responsibility and, and, you know, I don't see it. Do you, you guys have it? And all four of us looked at you and this is, you know, looked at each other like, holy, no, I dropped him. No, you pulled him up. So you're 10,000 feet off the ground. Or, I mean, off. we're the, about 12 now. Yeah. Cause it's basically down right. climbed a thousand feet right. out of the butt. So we're, we're about, yeah. Yeah. 23, something like that. I mean, it's, it's, um, and, and no rope. We realize, okay, there's no ropes. And we're like, oh, well, the storm's not going to start. There's, you know, I guess we're down climbing. And we had done some really hard pitches to avoid a big wind slab in the, in the middle of this Merkel ice field at some point. And I was like, oh, fuck. And, and I was, you know, I was fairly confident that um, if, if the gods needed a human sacrifice, it wasn't going to be me. I was like, Take, you know, Ward, he's sick. <laughs> Fucking, they always take the sick, right? right? They don't take the good guys. So I was pretty, I was pretty convinced something bad was going to happen. It was going to happen to Ward, and that Barry and Kevin and I were going to get down. And and that's it's not malicious, you know, or anything. I was just like, okay, the obvious candidate for fucking up right now is him because he's like he's altitude sick. He's been hypothermic. He's like been, you know, he's been getting beaten up for the last two or three days. So, um. We go down, we have to down climb the wind slab and we go and it's fucking booming. I mean, this, and, and I mean, it, and it was really scary and we got off the bottom of it and nothing happened. I'm like, okay, that's, that's cool. Um, and we had seen in the Welsenbach couloir on the way up, we had seen like there were some bits of tat, some fixed, you know, some old fixed ropes looks, you know, some of it looked like water ski rope, like stupid fucking polypropylene yellow three braid kind of stuff. And I thought, you know, we could probably put enough of that together to get over these steep sections, down climb what we can, and you know, if a rope breaks, well, it's not going to be any different than if we stay here. Right. So keep down climbing, and we go and we go, and we get to the t- we get to this choke point um, where basically, if you were on that face and you had to get down, you would end up in this spot. And so all the terrain features like funnel us into the top of the Wells and Bakular, and we're there, and and uh, one of the guys spots this this totally sun bleached haul bag or pack, you know, clipped to some fixed pitons and it's got Japanese writing on the outside of it. And we're looking at it like, 
okay. Uh, one of the guys cuts it open. Like, we got to see. We're hungry. We're going to be out of fuel soon. I don't know what's in here, but, like, it's full of something. Been here for a while, but it's probably still okay. You know, so we cut it open. There's two 50-meter ropes. <laughs> Same as our sponsor, which is Edelweiss. Um, there was a dozen ice screws, probably 30 pitons, 40 pitons, something like that. There was canisters for the for the stove, not the ones that we had, unfortunately. And there were these Cadbury fruit and nut bars. And apparently, so all this and there was you know all, all this stuff had been had been put there in '84. Um, there was a Japanese team, and they had fixed ropes up the RuPaul, and then three guys had gone to the summit and then disappeared, like they're gone. And uh, so the other guys before. Before they, you know, they waited and they waited and they looked around and you know, did, what do you do? You know, your friends have disappeared on a big ass fucking mountain in the Himalayas and you, and, and you don't really, you know, you don't really want to leave. Right. <laughs> but you, eventually you have to. And uh, so they said, okay, the concession is that, look, we'll take everything that they need to get down and survive up to that choke point at the top of the Wells and Bakular. Because if they're going to come back down this way, they're going to get funneled into this spot. So we'll go up, we'll put the gear there. And that's like the only sort of solace I, you know, they could, you know, give themselves before they split and went right. back to Japan. And uh, um, so, so four years later, we get there in basically the same situation because we were about to be disappeared up, up there. And now we're repelling like, you know, fucking crazy. We got fucking two equalized, you know, two point equalized anchors for every repel now. And like, it, it's no longer terrifying. The weather's still bad, but we but we have the means to get down. So we, we keep going. We spend one more night, dig one more snow cave um, on the way down. And eventually, you know, day, you know, night of day seven, whatever, we get down to base camp. It's fucking pissing rain still. So this storm that we were going to sit out ended up lasting 10 or 12 days. So if we had, decided, you know, if we had committed to, to staying up there to wait out the storm, we'd still be there. And there ensued after that, this whole period of, you know, like, do we go back up? Do we not go back? And this and that. The storm eventually clears, and we're stir crazy at this point. We're highly ambitious, and we're young, and we're fucking good at what we do. And so, um, uh, at some point, Kevin was just like, you know, I'm done fucking Himalayan climbing. I'm out of here. And uh, but then Barry and Ward and I start like packing to go back up, and Kevin was like, ah, motherfucker. And so he comes with us, and so we launch again after the storm oh, clears, and it basically in. Again, I'd have to go back to my notes, but we got to our previous high point. The, the high point that, it, you know, the, the base of the the, um, the Merkel Gully, 24,000 feet, um, we got there in two and a half days this time. Super acclimatized. We were fit. We were frustrated. Somewhere around 23,000, Ward had said, hey, um, can you guys give me one of the ropes? I got to go down. I'm fucked. I can't. I'm going to hold you back. Like, uh, fuck, super ambitious. Could This could have been a totally turned out the wrong way. Right. And like would have been, you know, castigated in the climate community ever since for you know leaving the guy but just like ah fuck it he seems fine you know so we give him one of the ropes he starts going down we climb another thousand feet up we're at the base of the Merkel Gully you know where we had gotten fully fucked before and look up and there's this huge lenticular over the summit of Nanga Parbat and every all three of us looked at each other and there was no there was no leader there was no vote there was no we were like we're fucking going down right and so from there, we blast, we get Ward on the way down. We went, we descended from 24,000 all the way to base camp in 13 hours. Um, basically spent the rest of that day packing our shit and 
drove out, you know, hiked out, drove out the next day and it was over. And then the, the, you know, the punchline, if there needs to be one, is we get back into, uh, we get back to Nanga Parbat and you got to have a debriefing by the tourism ministry or whatever. And so we're in there and, you know, everyone's still got the thousand yard stare at least. And, uh, the guy asks us, it's like, so how was your experience on Nanga Parbat? And Barry, total straight face, looks at the guy and goes, it was like having sex with death, which, you know, we all laughed. So, I mean, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't, I mean, how long did it take for the root ball face to get climbed Alpine style? Because how, Steve House and, uh, so he and Vince, uh, yeah. that was, so he, he went up, they, he and uh, Bruce Miller got, I think, pretty high on it in 2004. Right. Um, and then Steve went back with Vince in 2005. They climbed a new route. Oh, okay. Um, and I mean, on the RuPaul phase, uh, it would be to the right of the Messner route and, right. and, and quite, in a, and technically more difficult. And I, and, and the RuPaul phase is sort of the Messner, what would call the Messner route, if you will, on the RuPaul phase. Um, I think it has been climbed in right. Alpine style, Okay, but I'm, but I don't, I don't remember who or the year. I feel like in my sort of right. fleeting memory that it had, right. that it had been done, but but and I think you know I look back and I go wow at the time we were like cutting edge well sort of but you know Bearhart and John had already climbed you know that was what eighty six when they did the North Face of Everest and forty three hours round trip um, they climbed the East Face Dolgiri in winter uh, so that was that would have been Earhart Pierre Lensteiner and I can't remember if John John was with them or not or it was Pierre Morand anyway but like some crazy like. Alpine style stuff in the Himalayas had been done. I think the RuPaul would have advanced it in it terms in technical terms had we been able to do it. But right. but it did prove some possibility about shit that could get done. Right. That's a hell of a story. I mean, you know, well, the pack the the pack was everything. Well the pack the pack was everything. And then and so now, let me just fast forward th- you know, so three months from finding the pack, essentially. So Barry and I are at ever you know, we're at advanced base camp on the north side of Everest, where the only couple of people left, three Japanese people show up on a winter permit. One of them is a guy who was the leader. The leader of that winter trip was a guy who was on the trip in 84 to Nanga Parbat. Uh-huh. And I want to say that it's, I want to say it's Tsunyo Hasegawa. I could be completely wrong on this. I don't remember. Um, again, it's, and we tell him what happened. He's like, yeah, have you guys been climbing? And I was like, yeah, we just came from Naga Parbat. And as a matter of fact, uh, we had this thing happen and blah, 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 and this pack. And and it was very clear from this interaction that he would have preferred that it had been, that pack had saved his friends rather than us. Right. But he was very gracious. Right. Um, and and we thanked him, you know, profusely, <laughs> actually, um, when he found out that he was part of that team that left that thing that, you know, allowed us to survive. So, I mean, what what are we dealing with when we're dealing with guys like you and Barry and Ward and, and you know, where you come down from something like that and, and literally like a few days later, you're like, ah, oh, we should go back up there. You know, where... where <laughs> you're dealing with short memories. Yeah. And, and fucking hubris. Right. You know, in, I mean, jokingly. Right. You know, but... But I, th- I, I also think you're, you know, those like that situation that where 
sort of 10 days in base camp and we wanted, and I mean, I was hungry because this was my life, you know, it's right. the most important thing to me in the world. And, you know, and, and Kevin had said something at, the, at, at a point, maybe eight days into that sort of waiting through this, you know, storm. He's just like, you know, I got, I have more important things to do in my life, so I'm not going to go back up. Right. And I, was I like, mean, isn't that I, the question? I, and and my response to that was basically, I don't. Right. Like, this is it. And it's not like, and it's not like, this is it. I'm back into a corner. I have to do this. No, this is what I want to do. I, right. I am exactly where I want to be right now. And, um, and I was, I mean, I was pissed at Kevin when he said that. I was, because I, you know, it was kind of a slap in the face from, you know, my chosen career path or whatever. And, you know, but that guy, but Kevin was just gifted with ridiculous amount of talent, which he then honed. And I mean, the guy was an amazing fucking climber, but he's, pretty amazing at whatever he put his mind to so i could see it right you know and and uh um in any case the the i, I when you say what are we dealing with i i mean i think it's the plasticity of the mind in a way of like being able like because you step back and it's like it's it's absolutely absurd to go back up it was absurd to think that we could do that in the first place if the first ascent 15 well 71 so 17 years earlier had taken three and a half months. How the fuck did we think we were going to climb up in five days and down in two? Like already, it's a stretch. Already, right. it's like this is this is this is not normal. Like it's crazy to me. In the end, what the human mind can adapt to and consider normal and acceptable, and and I all I, if if I want to put it in sort of big wall terms. I think I probably shit myself on an A3 pitch once, and I can't imagine what sustained modern A4 would be like for multiple pitches. Like that level of tension at that intensity, I think I'd blow a fuse. But then you talk to guys who do it, not that bad. Right. <laughs> because famously, be, be, I have famously because, stated yeah, that it was not that bad. Exactly. <laughs> be, and. <laughs> And because you're adapted to it. Right. Because like, it was past tense. Exactly. Like if, if put me in that situation and, you know, many climbing situations I would have right. found myself in during my career where I was adapted to it, put me there today and I'd be, you know, it'd be cool. It'd be a heart attack. It'd just be over right away. But, right. But, but, but there it is. It's like through this incremental process of adaptation, we get, we arrive at a point where we can do things that appear ludicrous in a way from the outside and 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 that's you know, that would be my answer it's like that's what we're dealing with is like incremental adaptation all right folks thanks for listening and please come back for part two next time on the enorma cast where we go deep into alaska talk about life after climbing Mark reflects on his career and some of the friends he lost. And hey, folks, please don't forget to check your knot. Mm-hmm.